0: Heidi Larson is one of the world's leading authorities on why people don't take vaccines and how rumors about their safety become part of public opinion. She is the founder of the Vaccine Confidence Project, based at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. According to the New York Times, Heidi Larson says that dispelling vaccines' hesitancy means building trust and avoiding the term anti-vaxxer. Heidi, it's great to be speaking with you. Thank you for your time today.
1: Nice to be here. Thanks.
0: There was an w- interesting article in The Economist in August of 2018, that talked about the evolution of vaccine acceptance around the world. And and they pointed out that vaccination rates in Italy, France, and Serbia are now lower than those rates in Burundi, Rwanda, and Senegal. Why do you think there's increasing hostility to vaccine usage broadly in what we would consider to be advanced economies?
1: Some of it's principles of rights and more individually oriented freedoms than sense of community. Some of it is that the tangible threat of these viruses is more evident in some of these countries, although that's even changing in some of the poorest countries because of frankly, the success of vaccination. I also think that we we shouldn't underestimate the the potential for some of the new kind of, it's more like uh, they have a stronger reaction when there is misinformation in some of these poor countries, it's more of a shock to the system than it is in the the higher income countries that have a constant low grade questioning going on. Sure, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. So
0: you're saying that in general, some of the poorer countries are more susceptible to social media propaganda than some of the wealthier countries because we're more exposed to it. Is that the uh, the premise?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's part of the premise is that they're. They when they get it, it's the the system is less in a way less used to the shock. On the other hand, you have places like Nigeria where things go viral very quickly. Sure. And also usually there's tends to be less diversity of different platforms going on. So there's usually a dominant platform that some of these countries have. So when it goes viral, it really goes viral. And one thing about this kind of fragmented social media platform situation we're in in more countries is that although things jump from platforms, that phenomena of, it's like when we had one TV channel, everyone saw the same thing, and now you've got right. multiplicity and then some. So you can get groups that get more isolated, but I think it's a combination of the background fragileness of the system more broadly in some cases. There's also a different trust in government. I mean, I think another big, big issue about it is the relationship with government more broadly. We see that the countries with wobbly trust in government are also vulnerable to vaccine issues.
0: There's sort of two challenges. And first off, there's a ton of skepticism right now about government leadership, particularly in the OECD advanced economies. And secondly, the disease you know, if you're under 30 years old, your risk of mortality is under zero. How are we going to square the circle then with regards to the fact that COVID has such a odd mortality rate that is not necessarily uniform across the whole population curve?
1: I think it's clear that um, from a mortality perspective, um, those with underlying conditions or the elderly or frontline health workers that may be younger and healthier, but they have a kind of a Hyperexposure to the virus, which makes them more vulnerable. So there are certain groups that, but we should not, and I think this is something we haven't talked about enough publicly, we should not underestimate the debilitating um, uh, factors of COVID illness. It is showing to be having much longer uh, sequelae trajectory of problems. It's not like, it is so not like the flu. It's not like you're sick or even very sick for two, even three weeks, and then it goes away. There's more and more reports of very long symptoms, everything from kind of chronic pain, uh, fatigue, chronic um, fatigue syndrome, uh, other issues with heart, with different uh, organs, with um, neurological issues. And we've only seen these longer-term symptoms as long as COVID has existed. So these could be lifelong. We don't know. So I would be very... I think we have to make sure that the people have a better understanding about what COVID is about.
0: You recently published an interesting study, a fantastic study in The Lancet that was a comprehensive global opinion survey encompassing 300,000 individual responses in 149 countries. I mean, it's a monumental Herculean undertaking, and it's very impressive. Can you tell us a little bit about the findings?
1: We found a few things. Um, One is that sentiments are volatile they're much more volatile than they were 10 certainly 20 30 years ago meaning they change it's a bit more like political opinion polling so even we do routine monitoring of sentiments across the eu for instance and even just in two years you can see uh, changes that i think we wouldn't have historically seen changing the way they they have. And again, that's reflective about changing relationship with government and local issues. So one is volatility. The other is that one thing we see, because these are nationally representative samples, we can see that the population-wide impact of what might be thought of as being a locally contained issue. Indonesia, for instance, the country that had the w- most dramatic drop in confidence between 2015 and 2019. Why was that? Well, there were a group, uh, one particular, but a a group of Muslim uh, leaders who declared a fatwa, which is a a public proclamation, against the MR vaccine, the measles rubella vaccine, saying that it was haram, uh, not acceptable in, in religious tradition practice. That, we thought, you could have thought that was a local issue that was resolved. That had a huge knock-on effect. We've seen in Japan, an issue around an HPV vaccine had a knock-on effect on confidence more broadly. They also had low, it wasn't the lowest, but low confidence. Philippines, a huge knock-on effect from a dengue vaccine issue. So, one thing we see is that don't underestimate the population wide and vaccine cross vaccine confidence that one issue could provoke.
0: Do you see a reverse or inverse correlation between the amount of cultural freedom there is in a country versus vaccination skepticism in general?
1: Some of it's about freedoms, but some of it is about trust. I mean, I, I think, and that's why we've picked confidence as, as our kind of mantra, uh, because and it's not just about confidence in the product; sure. it's about confidence and trust in the product, but also in the provider, the healthcare provider, as well as the provider producer of the vaccine and uh, policies and politics. So it's multiple levels of of trust relations. So there, we definitely see. In fact, there was a a, a correlation there. Um, in fact, there was a. Uh, political scientist who took all of our uh, EU data, for instance, across 28 countries uh, and correlated it with political opinion polling. Interesting. And he found pretty consistently across all countries that the more you tended to vote in uh, extreme populist uh, parties, vote for ex- more populist parties, the more likely you were to be skeptical about vaccines. And that's not unique to Europe. (laughs) Well,
0: that's really interesting. Again, that's fascinating because it leads to my next question, because I wanted to ask a bit about France. In the EU data set, the one country that sticks out a bit like a sore thumb is France. That seems particularly hostile to vaccination. And one would assume that, that there's a correlation then with the Gilets jaunes and a lot of the ground to swell of the populism and protesting against the government? Is that one explanation then?
1: Well, I think that's part of it, the whole freedom uh, anti-control mantra. On the other hand, uh, both France and Italy uh, have introduced uh, extended – additional requirements in their childhood vaccine program, largely provoked by the really huge outbreak of measles. It was over 80,000 cases. And that was somehow in that context, it was enough of a threat that they managed to keep, uh, get it accepted uh, to add uh, measles to the list of required vaccinations for school. And what's interesting is that the healthcare professionals a number of them in france in particular apparently were saying a colleague in the health ministry told me that the health professionals it helped them in their interactions with parents that the government was requiring it um, because if it's not a requirement then they feel like they're in a difficult position to persuade parents but when the government requires it it kind of it gave it supported their efforts to persuade parents. So, again, it all depends on where you are in the conversation, uh, whether you're a, pa- a concerned parent or you're a, a healthcare professional that's confronted with the parents, but then, you know, if the government's not behind you, similar situation in Japan, the government stopped proactively uh, recommending the HPV vaccine, even though it's still available in the program, but because of a, it was. Assessed as a psychosomatic reaction, but their fury from a number of members in the public, the government said, okay, it's there if you demand it or you want it individually. Uh, but we are not going to proactively support it. And that's put health professionals in a very difficult situation. Acceptance has dropped from over 75% to 0.03% in some places.
0: So again, if you look at these laws that were passed in Italy and France, you're saying that in actual fact, after passing these laws, that actually there was an uptick in opinions about vaccination because people then realized that there was really, it was mandatory and there was no other option. So you had to do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for the people who were, that was particularly the case for the people who are, as they say, on the fence. Sure. The hardliners are going to dig their heels even more. What I find problematic about the term and the, I think, overuse of the term anti-vaxxers, it really polarizes the landscape and it kind of crowds out a lot of the very genuine concerns that parents have and they, they feel it. They have... They've, some of them have told me they feel demonized because they try to ask a question and they're immediately put in the box of, oh, are you an anti-vaxxer too?
0: Is part of the problem that vaccines have become so safe and so effective that we only see the adverse events now and we don't see the impact of polio uh, we just don't see that anymore. Is that part of the problem that we're almost too good at our
1: jobs now? Well, that was a comfortable explanation by the community. <laughs> but the reality is, and there might've been, and there, there is some small part of that that probably has been true in some settings. But if we look at where we're at with COVID-19, that has kind of broken that explanation, shattered that explanation because you know here we have, a highly fatal, at least as we've already discussed, you know, yes, it's in some of the more vulnerable populations, but still not uniquely there, long-term disabling conditions from this virus. We don't have a vaccine yet, so we don't see refusers, but we've seen an amplification of misinformation and distrust around possible vaccines. So here we have a setting where the imminent threat of this virus Is not small, but we still have some of the highest rates and and circulation of anti vaccine sentiment that we've ever seen.
0: So, what do you think is going to happen? We were just discussing um, a press release that came out today from Pfizer. The assumption is Pfizer would be first to the post with the new mRNA vaccine. They dosed the second dose with 30,000 people on September 30th, so it now looks like that is coming to fruition. What do you think is going to happen if we're releasing a new technology into a new area where there's obviously a need? What do we do for the next steps to make sure that these things are accepted?
1: Well, we shouldn't wait until the vaccine. (laughs) You're in line to get a vaccine to start explaining the process of making it. Because, you know, as you say, it's not just a brand new vaccine. It's a brand new process. Uh, It has implication for, I mean, just the term mRNA for those who are anxious about anything that, as they say, I don't want anything that messes with my DNA. We've already seen circulating posts about, okay, well, first it was GMO. now Now we have GMH, genetically modified humans. So I think we need to get ahead of that. And I mean, there's already questions out there, but I think we can talk about the process and that's really important. Don't wait until the day that people are hopefully in line for some of these vaccines to explain uh, clearly how it's made to be already kind of harvesting the questions so that when we do have Right now, we might not have the answers to a number of the questions out there, but at least if we have the short list even of the most frequent circulating questions, we know what we need on our Q&A sheet to give to health care providers, to give to health centers. Um, All of that needs to be happening now.
0: Now, you're based in the UK. What are you advising the government now around the inevitability of these vaccines? What what are you telling the government to do? I mean, today, tomorrow, and the next month?
1: Well, I think we already need to be out there listening to communities. And we, we know we have, um, and that's one of the reasons we have some of the background understanding of where there are historically um, less compliant communities and groups. It's one of the reasons we established the Vaccine Confidence Index, is that we're not waiting to measure confidence when there's a problem. We have an ongoing kind of benchmark of what it was, what it is. So we know some of the areas, my neighborhood, I live in Hackney. It's the worst vaccinating neighborhood. I'm sorry to say, uh, not neighborhood. It's it's a whole. It's a very large borough. Yeah. Very multi-ethnic. Very highly mobile. Um, a lot of those reasons are, are factoring into it. But you know, also in in the Midlands in the north, there are certain communities that historically, even going back to the 1800s, um, some of the anti-vaccine leaks came from, you know, the the northern part of the country or mid the Midlands, I say I guess they say. Mm-hmm. In areas where we already know that there's likely to be some questioning. We need to find kind of allies. We need to find people in those communities that can be partnering and and help with the explanations locally. But we also need to be finding out well what are the questions and those we can already harvest. And that's where I think the local you know health practices they should be trying to understand do you have some questions or do you what kind of information do you want not just you know what do we think you need to hear and this is one of the breakdowns in the communication with health authorities and the public is there's a lot of information coming out not just I'm talking about vaccines more broadly pushed out by health authorities about you know, the vaccines and when to take them and why to take them and all that. But it's not necessarily responsive to what people's questions are. And that's when they go into social media.
0: Right. And in your book, as well as the interview you did in the New York Times, you dug in a bit to these organizations that in 1850 were anti-vaccination and were quite vociferous. And you actually quote several of them. How did society deal with the anti-vaccination movement initially in the 1850s compared to now? And looking back, is there something that was done then that we can learn from?
1: Well, that was when the first, what do they call it? The the exemption What do they call it? Conscientious Conscientious objectors, yeah. Which I always thought as a child, it had to do with not wanting to go to war. (laughs) But actually, the first use of the term conscientious objector goes back to exactly the smallpox anti-vaccine league. That was what appeased it. They said, okay, we hear you. Uh, We will allow what we call a conscientious objector clause so that those who, for whatever religious or philosophical reasons refuse to take this vaccine there is an option there so they gave an option and i think in in many requirements for vaccines around the world there are generally always medical exemptions for people who cannot take a vaccine because of underlying immune conditions or whatever but then in addition to that certainly in the US you do have what they call used to call religious exemptions, now call philosophical exemptions because, you know, some people have said it's not a religious thing. This is my belief system. But not everywhere does does that. So I think that it comes back to this issue of choice.
0: There was an outbreak of measles in Berkeley, UC Berkeley, three years ago. We see concentrations of the sort of anti-vaccination movement often around institutions of higher learning, et cetera. Is there a correlation with, shall we say upper echelons of elite organizations or at least education and pushing back against vaccination? is Is there a correlation there? Do we see that as a, a reality?
1: Um We've looked into that. Uh, in some settings, yes. Uh, like within the within the U.S., we certainly see that in some private schools and in some, there were some correlations there. But I have to say, when we look globally, education is less of the issue than belief systems and politics.
0: So is it mostly then philosophical, religion, religious purposes, things that mostly drive the opinions? There,
1: yeah, and just basic confidence. I mean, frankly, yeah, Well, I've sat with some of the poorest, least educated women in in India and Nigeria, for instance, during the polio campaigns. And as one group of women um, said to me in northern Nigeria in Kano State, you know, what makes us so angry is hearing on the radio that we're refusing this vaccine because we're ignorant. We wouldn't even be asking questions if we were so ignorant. And they had a point.
0: So you grew up in Massachusetts. You're a Connecticut Yankee. How does one come from Massachusetts and end up running the vaccine group in London. How did this happen?
1: A lot happened between then.
0: Now. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't a straight shot.
1: <laughs> Including in Berkeley. I, uh, I did my PhD in Berkeley, but most of my life, to be honest, I've been uh, working overseas. I was with uh, initially on research grants, but then uh, with UNICEF, Uh, in South Asia and then the the South Pacific and with WHO in the global office uh, and then came back to the U.S. to be working with UNICEF headquarters on um, the launch of GABI, the Global Alliance of Vaccines and Immunization, and the introduction of new vaccines. And it was during those five years when I was working in the global immunization program where we saw, where I saw between 2000 and 2005, what struck me as almost an epidemic of questioning happening in small ways and in big ways. Individuals, uh, some small communities, uh, belief groups, uh, some individual governments who felt like, whoa, enough is enough. How much can, how many vaccines can our system take? And some of them turned some of that into finding reasons why the new ones weren't good or why they couldn't manage them, where there was some risk with them. And that's when I decided that we needed to understand this wave of questioning and sometimes dissent more broadly. And I, I left the UN after several years to go back to academia and set up a research group to really and that's start of the Vaccine Confidence Project, which I founded uh, 10 years ago.
0: And your husband, Peter Piat, who's a very famous microbiologist as well, also the head of the London School of Tropical Medicine, is quite a power couple you two have. Yes. He recently had COVID-19. How's he doing?
1: He's overall much better, but uh, certainly has some of the longer term, uh, uh, you know, if it gets more tired um doesn't have some of the more extreme things that some people have but you know there's a difference um and and the thing is after you've recovered from the actual infection and you're no longer positive he had the situation which a number of people have had where your uh immune system goes into overdrive because it's a totally foreign virus to your our immune systems and that's why it's so dangerous is because you know, with a lot of these older viruses like measles, it's been circulating wildly you know, naturally for a long time. So a lot of immune systems have some little exposure anyway, that immune systems have some experience with, but not with this one. So then it doesn't know, it, it kind of overreacts and causes other uh, situations like interstitial pneumonia, which in his case, and a number of people are exhibiting that too. So it's complicated. And I just would really urge people to not take this illness lightly at all.
0: Where do you think we'll be treating COVID in a year from now?
1: Well, I, I would hope that we already, the survival rates among the more serious cases are better. I think part of it is that the health systems, the health and medical um, research, you know we do have and just from sheer experience know a bit more how to manage some of these symptoms and and treat them but we're not there yet but i I do know that in addition to the vaccines which is never is not by itself going to be enough, there are a number of therapeutics and treatments in trials that hopefully will be in a better place. but I think this is also a bigger wake-up call to, how systems and health systems were really not ready for this.
0: What's the key to moving public opinion forward for vaccinations like the one we're going to have from Pfizer soon? The
1: key to moving forward is, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, listening to communities, understanding what their questions are to the extent that you can answer them, be ready I also think that the more people that start to get vaccinated, it does create a, you know, when people see that their neighbor got vaccinated or their friend or their colleague, it it builds confidence. And I think a number of people and not, and certainly understandably, you know, I'm open, but I want to wait and see what others do. So the more we build, you know, a number of people accepting it and doing okay and not having serious side effects, the better. But I still think that we cannot let our guard down with the other measures we're taking. We're going to need to be careful with distancing and, and hygiene and all the rest for quite a while.
0: Professor Lesson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thanks so much.